I never hear, hear that hymn without uh, thinking of the background of it. Uh, it was written by George Matheson, who shortly after the Chicago fire uh, put his family on board ship and sent them to Europe while uh, they rebuilt, rebuilt their home. And on the way, uh, the uh, ship went down. And uh, Matheson received a telegram from Europe saying, all lost. And he sat down and wrote the words of that, uh, that hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now would you uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. I'm sure that many of you saw the movie Brian's song or you've seen, uh, seen it on television since it uh, first was produced. Uh, it's a wonderful story of uh, friendship. Uh, it's the story of Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. Uh, Sayers and Piccolo, as you may remember, were running backs for the Chicago Bears back in the late 60s, 1967, 68, 69. And in 1969, Piccolo uh, developed uh, cancer which he tried to beat and make a comeback, and uh, he lost. He died. Uh, that uh, year, the Football Writers uh, Association gathered to award the Hallis Award for uh, the premier running back of 1969, and it was given posthumously to uh, Brian Piccolo. Uh, Gail Sayers was to receive the, the reward for Piccolo, and you may remember that scene in the movie, uh, he had prepared speech, but he was unable to give it. All he could say was, I accept this gift for Brian Piccolo. I loved Brian Piccolo. And that's as far as he got. Uh, that uh, movie, I think, uh, really tugged at our hearts because all of us want a, a friend like that, someone that, uh, that really loves us. And yet those kinds of friendships are, are very rare. They're so rare, they're normally celebrated in uh, poetry and, and song and stories like the story of uh, Jonathan and David and Damien's love for Pythias and Ruth and Naomi's uh, celebrated love doesn't happen very much, but it does happen and it can happen. And I think this, uh, this story, the story of Jonathan's love for David, tells us how a love relationship, a same-sex love relationship uh, develops. I want to begin by reading the first five verses of uh, chapter 18. This uh, takes place right after David's duel with uh, Goliath. And uh, Jonathan had watched David take on the giant in the Valley of Elah. And then he listened uh, while Saul debriefed David. And it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant and David, literally. It was a mutual covenant, though Jonathan was the initiator of it. Jonathan made a covenant and David because... Jonathan loved David as himself. 
Uh, the key word in this text is that word soul. It occurs uh, four times. Uh, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and David, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And then again in verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own, uh, own soul. Aristotle said friendship is a single soul residing in two bodies. That's almost exactly the statement that's made here. These two men had one soul. Their souls were knit, bonded together is, is the word. That word is rarely used in the Old Testament. It's used for Jacob's love for Benjamin, his youngest son. We're told that his soul was knit to the soul of, of Benjamin. This is a, a relationship that began at first sight Jonathan watched David as he walked across the valley and as he knelt in that little brook and picked up those stones. And then he, he walked toward the giant with such determination. He said to the giant, you come to me with sword and, and uh, shield. I, I come to you in the, in the word of the Lord of Israel, the name of the Lord of Israel. And it set up a... a kind of a sympathetic vibration, a resonance in Jonathan's heart. He recognized that David was a kindred soul. They had the same outlook on things. Both these men were tough, uh, courageous, swashbuckling uh, men willing to take on uh, the Philistines at, uh, at all odds. There are a couple of stories about Jonathan that precede uh, this, this contact with David. Early on in chapter 13, he takes on a Philistine garrison all by himself and mobilizes the uh, army of Israel that had been paralyzed into inactivity. And a bit later, there's that uh, exciting story of David driving a, an, a, a group of Philistines off of a ridge. They were up on top of a ridge where they could view the, the Israeli army and could report on their whereabouts, and, and uh, Jonathan realized that that was a strategic uh, location. He had to drive them off that, uh, that ridge, and he did so just with his armor bearer. Just a very courageous man. But he did so in faith. He said to his armor bearer, it doesn't make any difference whether there are many or, or few. If the Lord is with us, the numbers don't matter. And he saw the same spirit in, uh, in David. And I think that's often how friendships begin. It's just an affinity, a natural affinity. You're just drawn to each other. It's an attraction. It's not something that, that uh, you can fabricate. Uh, it just happens. You like the same things. You like to read. You like to garden. You like to toll paint. You like to fish. You like to play racquetball. And you're drawn together because it's just a natural relationship. And sometimes uh, you're drawn together because the other person is your superior in some realm. You want to learn from them. That's how our friendship begins. I remember a story from Korea about General William Westmoreland. He was reviewing a company of paratroopers. And as he went down the line, he asked each trooper, Do you like to jump, son? And, and they all said back, I love to jump, General. And he came to the end. There was a sort of, kind of smallish trooper standing there. And he said, Do you like to jump, son? And he said, No, sir, I hate to jump. And... Uh, General Westmoreland said, well, why do you jump then, son? He said, because I like to be around men that jump. 
And I've always loved that story because I, you know, I've, <clears throat> I feel that very much as uh, that young trooper did. I like to be around men to jump. And uh, I think we all feel that we're better men and women when we're in the company of better men and women. But there's a, it's hard to describe. It's just an, just an attraction. Uh, here's a same-sex love that's not sexual. It's just, just an attraction, a strong uh, feeling that you have about someone else. I think we have a lot of friends like that. I do and you do too. Just people that... That, who share our common interests, who look at things the way we do, and we're immediately attracted to them. But um, if that's as far as a friendship goes, it never develops into anything uh, very profound. There's another step, which uh, is, is described here in terms of Jonathan giving his armor that... Uh, act of sharing his armor, giving his armor to David is emblematic of the tilt of the relationship almost from the very beginning. Uh, in the ancient Near East, in many of these tales, and uh, actually in Homer's tales as well, there's this, there are these stories of warriors swapping armor. That was the way they, they uh, bonded as men. And that's what Jonathan is doing. But the interesting thing is that David has nothing to give. Absolutely nothing. Shepherd's crook and a sling and his, the, the ragged clothes that he wore as a, as a sheep herder. That's all he had. And that's the story of Jonathan's love for David. He just gave and gave and gave and gave. And David requited that love to the extent that he could, but he had very little to give. And his giving didn't have the stresses and strains in it that Jonathan's did. Jonathan had to choose between two loyalties, the loyalty to his father, who was insanely jealous of David, and the loyalty to, to David. Jonathan had to face the fact that God had chosen David to be the king. Jonathan was the heir apparent to the throne. He was the prince. He should have been the next king of Israel. Gave that away. Because he saw that it was God's will that David become the next king. He'd already been anointed. David uh, was much more success, successful than Jonathan. Much more popular. Women made up songs about David. Saul has slain his thousand. David has slain his ten thousand. David was a brilliant leader. Jonathan didn't seem to, while he had personal courage, didn't seem to have the charisma that, that David had. And what Jonathan did throughout his life is invest himself in David so that David could become the man that, that God wanted him to be. He just gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. That's what makes for a friendship. Giving love, giving time, giving your energy, giving your money, giving your best efforts. Giving to see the other person become everything that God intends them to, uh, to be. I think of John the Baptist, who's described as the friend of the groom. Jesus is the groom. John the Baptist is the friend. And uh, his philosophy of life was, he must increase, I must decrease. He lived to see the Lord become everything that, that his heavenly Father determined that he was, he was to be. Paul says, says in Philippians 2, don't. Don't look after your own interests, but look after the interests of others. That's an incredible statement when you think about it. Think more of others than you think of yourself. Give more to others than you give 
give to yourself. That's such a remarkable thought that he has to document it. He does so by a Lord's life, whom he said uh, was equal with God, but he set aside that the, the independent use of his attributes as God. He never ceased to be God, but he set, set aside the use of, of those attributes, and he emptied himself of self of his own self-interest, and he became a human being and a servant, even to the point of death. And, and that, was, that was the act, the attitude, the lifestyle that, that characterized Jonathan. He just gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. There's something very interesting about that concept because it just turns upside down our view of friendship. We think of, of friends in terms of those that will befriend us. Someone that will call me when I'm down. Someone that will send me cards and letters. Someone that will loan money to me that invite me out. You know, always be moving in my direction. But uh, the Jonathan and David turns that upside down. It says essentially that a friend is someone you befriend. We, we think of friends as someone that befriend us. But uh, the way the King James put that proverb uh, is, uh, hasn't been reproduced in some of the modern translations. But the King James says, if you want to have friends, you have to show yourself friendly. A friend is someone who befriends someone else, not someone who is befriended. See, that just turns the whole thing upside down. And if you have that outlook on life, you'll never be without a friend. The whole world's full of friends. Because a friend is not someone that cares about you, it's someone that, that you care about, someone that you give to. Jonathan's name actually means God gives, and the giving was his middle name. And uh, you, see, you see that uh, name lived out in the uh, commitment that he had to, uh, to David, and it was exactly the thing that David needed. He grew up in a cold and hostile environment, as I told you. He was despised by his family and by his uh, community. And, Desperately needed a friend. and Jonathan became his friend, and in that warm environment of Jonathan's friendship, he began to become the man that God had envisioned him to be. He became successful. Every, uh, every uh, deed that uh, Saul gave him to do. Now, the third thing that I see in this uh, little text is, uh, is that there was a commitment here on the part of Jonathan. Affinity is place is where friendships begin. They grow through giving. But uh, commitment is necessary for a friendship to become everything that uh, it ought to be. A, a commitment in marriage is what keeps, uh, keeps a couple together. When, when we uh, say, I will, uh, it's, it's a social contract. We're saying to the community, we're, we're going to stick together through life. Through hell or high water, through difficult times, no matter what goes wrong, we're going to stick together. See? That, that's what a marriage is. I, I think I've mentioned before my friend Jack Crabtree, who is one of the profoundest men I think I've ever been around. He was a philosophy student at Stanford, just a very innovative thinker. And I had the privilege of marrying Jack and Jody uh, while just shortly after they got out of uh, school, out of the university. And, Jack asked if he could write his marriage vows, and I was delighted to have him do so, and waited through the whole ceremony for him to say something really profound, because I knew that it, it would be something unusual. I uh, did not have a chance to preview his vows, so I had no idea what he was going to say. And 
When he got to that part of the uh, ceremony and I asked them to exchange vows, Jack looked at Jody and he said, Jody, it didn't make any difference what happens in our life. I will never split. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that is the profoundest thing I think I ever heard. <laughs> I will never split. And I think a friendship has to have the same commitments, like the flying buttresses on the old uh, cathedrals, medieval cathedrals that hold it together, you know. It's a commitment. No matter what happens, I'm not going to split. No matter how difficult things get, I won't split. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never give up on the relationship, you see. It takes a lot of hard work, but uh, it's essential to keep, keep a relationship uh, together. All of us hunger for... Uh, Intimacy, but at the same time, we, uh, we're afraid of it. There's a terrible ambivalence in all of us. You know, we want relationship. We want to open our hearts up to someone. We want others to open their hearts up to us, but uh, we're fearful. It's like a square dance. You know, we do si do toward each other, and then we do si do away. We do si do together, and we do si do away. We try to find a safe place in there where we can open up just a little bit of ourselves. And, and still be accepted because what we fear is that people will see the ugly stuff. See, most of, most of us, quite frankly, is ugly and unacceptable, and we don't want people to see that. So we don't open up. What we need is a commitment that says, no matter how ugly things get, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never turn away from that, uh, that relationship. Uh, George MacDonald, in his wonderful little book, Fantasties, uh, puts it like this. How many who love never come any nearer than to behold each other, each other in a mirror? They seem to know and yet never, never know the inward life, never enter the other's soul, and part at last with but the vaguest notion of the universe on the borders of which they have been hovering for years. There are a lot of marriages like that. We we don't really know each other at all because we're afraid that the other person will reject us if they find out what we're really like. And what that commitment does is assure us that no matter what the other person finds out, no matter how the fantasies that we, that we develop about the other person, are dis, no, no matter what fantasies are dispelled, we will not walk out. That's what makes a marriage last, and that's what makes a friendship last. We'll never split. David saw some, or Jonathan saw some really ugly things about David. We'll look at some of them in the months that he uh, was fleeing from Saul, some of the things that he did. One very foolish act on his part cost the lives of all of the priests at Nob. Jonathan never gave up on David. David is a very insecure young man, as I mentioned last week. Insecure people are often very threatening. A friend of mine says threatened people are threatening, and they are. They're hard to, to live with. But Jonathan never gave up on David, stuck with him to the very end. It's a commitment. Now, I don't have time to develop the uh, rest of the story this morning. We're going to look at uh, the remaining parts of chapters 18, 19, and 20 uh, next week. It's a uh, 
story of incredible palace intrigue. It's a word that occurs over and over and over again in these stories in chapter 18, 19. I've forgotten how many times, 15, 16 times uh, the word death occurs. Saul wanted to put David to death. David was becoming very successful, very popular. As I said, women were making up songs about him. Uh, Saul's uh, daughter, Michal, fell in love with David. The people loved him. The warriors loved him. Everybody loved David except Saul. He was insanely jealous of David. F.B. Myers says that jealousy was a hell spark that Saul should have stamped underfoot, but he didn't, and it just became a raging fire that destroyed him. And what you have in chapters 18 and 19 and 20 is you know, Saul trying to, trying to kill David. On one occasion, David was playing his harp. Saul cast a spear at David. David ducked out of the way. He came back, and apparently Saul tried again. And David uh, fled. That's the other word that occurs all the way through these chapters. Escape. David escaped. Saul chased him into his own home. And Michal alerted him and he escaped. And and David got away without harm. Went down to Nob where the priests were. Spent time with Samuel who was his friend and mentor. Saul chased him down there. Just couldn't get away from the man. Saul was bent on, on killing him. And all the way through... Jonathan is uh, trying to reconcile Saul and David. It's a wonderful picture of love because uh, Jonathan could have used Saul's jealousy to his own advantage. could have used Saul's jealousy to propel himself to the throne. He wouldn't do it because he sought what God sought for, uh, for David. And uh, in chapter 20, you have a... Interesting exchange between these two. Uh, Verse 14 and 15. There was a festival and, and, uh, uh, and everyone in the court was required to attend. David knew that Jonathan was trying to, uh, that Saul was trying to assassinate him. And he was fearful of this uh, particular occasion. So he said to uh, Jonathan, just tell Saul that I'm going home to a family reunion, that we get together on these uh, festival, uh, these occasions, and see what he does. Because David knew that if his intent was to kill him, this frustration would show. And apparently Saul had arranged with some of his uh, soldiers to assassinate David at the dinner. First day, uh, Saul asked, where's David? Jonathan says, well, he's with his folks up in Bethlehem. And, and Saul swallowed his anger. Second day, he says, Where is, uh, where's David? And Jonathan said, Well, he still is with his folks. And David stu- Saul stood up, grabbed his spear, and shouted at Jonathan across the table, You son of a perverse woman, he said. This is precisely our idiom. You're no son of mine. And he, and he hurled his spear across the table at Jonathan. And then in probably what is the uh, is a masterpiece of, of understatement, the uh, author of First of Samuel says, Then Jonathan knew that Saul was trying to kill David. <laughs> and uh, he goes to find David. And again, he serves as uh, an intercessor, uh, 
trying to uh, bring Jonathan, bring Saul and David back together. And they go out into the field, verse 11. Jonathan said to David, come and let's go out into the field. So the, the two of them went out in the field. I, it, that's just such a wonderful picture to me, these two rugged old warriors walking together uh, by a stream or across a field, just uh, chatting and sharing their hurt and their pain, talking to one another, encouraging one another. And Jonathan says in verse 14, uh, actually the end of verse 13, May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? That word loving kindness is a much too weak word. It's, uh, it's the word kesed, Hebrew word kesed. It's used throughout the Old Testament for marriage contracts. And, but more importantly, it's used for the contract that God makes with his people. Uh, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you, he says. And he says, that's, that's the kind of commitment that I, uh, that I need from you. Uh, show me, says the loving kindness of the Lord, that I may not die. And you shall not cut off your kessed again, your loving kindness, your loyalty from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of uh, David's enemies makes two requests of David. It says, when you come to the throne, and you surely will come to the throne, spare my life, because in those uh, cruel days, when a king ascended to the throne, he usually uh, murdered the uh, reigning dynasty that had preceded him. They did that in the pagan ancient Near East, even happened occasionally in Israel, and Jonathan was not sure what would happen, and so he, he just, you know, that was a cruel age. You have to realize that. And Jonathan asked David to swear that he'll spare his life when he becomes king. Then he asks if you'll spare the life of his family. See, a friend is not someone who just cares about us. It's someone who cares about those that we care about. Some of you know what that's like, you know, to have an ADD child or difficult, delinquent child and to have a friend who not only loves you, he loves your child. I mean, nobody else understands your child, but that person does. That's the sort of thing that Jonathan is asking for. Love me, love my kids, he says. Love my kin. Uh, Jonathan had two sisters. We don't know much about them. He had a younger brother named Ishbosheth, uh, who actually became king for a day, a king for two years, actually. He succeeded Saul to the throne, and, and this was after David was anointed king in Hebron, and rather than disrupt the uh, kingdom and be false to his covenant with Jonathan, he would not take the throne of all Israel. This occupied the throne of the southern kingdom and uh, refused to go to war against Ishbosheth, though he was encouraged to do so time and time again. And, and finally, when Ishbosheth was assassinated by some of his own uh, soldiers, his bodyguard, David took the lives of those that took Ishbosheth's life because he was faithful to his promise to Jonathan. Jonathan had a son, a little boy. His name was Mephibosheth. He was only four at this time. 
child had just just the most melancholy, sad life you can imagine. When Jonathan and, and Saul were slain on the slopes of Mount Gilboa some months after this uh, this covenant was uh, cut, to use use the word that that David and Jonathan use. Uh, when Jonathan and David were slain, Mephibosheth's nurse uh, grabbed him up and started to run out the door and apparently fell and broke both of his legs and he was lame from that point on. One of the first things that David did when he came to the throne is ask for the whereabouts of Mephibosheth and he brought him into his house and, and fed him and gave him Saul's property and gave him Ziba and some other of Saul's servants to take care of him. Turned out this boy was disloyal to him in the end. That when David was forced off the throne, went into exile because of his uh, son's uh, palace revolt, uh, Mephibosheth sided with, uh, with David's son. And yet when, uh, when David came back, he restored him to his place of honor, gave him back at least half of Saul's possessions, and took him into his house to feed him. Howard Hendricks has a wonderful sermon on Mephibosheth that he entitles, The Tablecloth Covered His Feet. A wonderful picture of Davis, David's gracious love for this young man. Uh, his feet really symbolizing the, uh, the tragedy of his life and the flaws in his character that David covered up in love for the sake of Jonathan. He not only cared about Jonathan, he cared about those that Jonathan cared about. So they made this covenant and uh, they invoked the Lord as witness. Verse 23. As for the agreement which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And then again in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will, will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants uh, forever. He invokes the Lord as the witness to this covenant, just as we do when we... Uh, Stand in front of the pastor, or priest, or whoever marries you, and you, you say, we will. The Lord is witness. So they're really binding themselves to a, a, an oath forever before the Lord. And then they parted for a time. Jonathan went on to fight the wars, uh, the Philistine wars. They didn't see each other for a number of months. And then if, if you'll turn with me to chapter 23, there's a remarkable uh, text here that is often overlooked by the commentaries, which I think is the next step in the relationship. We've talked about natural affection, that affinity that we have for one another, which grows as we give, which develops in its profundity as we commit ourselves to one another with the same uh, loyalty oath that the Lord takes to be loyal to us. Uh, the next step is uh, described in verses 16 and, and 17. David was out in the wilderness of Ziph, which is a barren, hostile wilderness between the Dead Sea and the mountains of Judea. It's a terrible place, and David was being run from pillar to post. At this present time, he was hiding in, in Horish. The, the Hebrew word Horish just means thicket. He was in, uh, in the forest. 
trying to stay away from Saul. In verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Hebrew text actually says he strengthened his grip on God. That's a wonderful picture. That's what friendship is really all about, as I have mentioned before. Discipleship is is a simple matter of befriending people and imparting the truth to them. We formalize it, make it into a discipline, make it too difficult, frighten everyone everyone out. But uh, basically, uh, discipleship, friendship is a matter of uh, just loving people and imparting the truth to them. As God speaks the truth to your hearts, then you take what's in your hearts and you plant it in the heart of somebody else. And that's what Jonathan did. Strengthened his grip on God by reminding him of the promise of God. He says in verse 17, don't be afraid. Because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And you will be king over you. And I will be next to you. He never... uh, Got to realize that expectation. He died before it uh, could come true. It would have been true, I'm sure, if, Dave, if Jonathan had lived. But he reminds Jonathan that you're going to be king, and I'll, I'm willing to play second fiddle. You're going to be the king, because God said you're going to be the king. And you're immortal until you become the king. There's no way you can lose your life, because God has promised you're going to be the king. And, and what he did was to... Stir David up to courage and to a firmer grip on God by reminding him of the promises of God. And, and ultimately, that's what a friendship is all about. It takes on the form of discipleship. Though I don't like to call it that because, as I say, people tend to formalize it then. It's not what it is. It's just that as you walk in the field together, as you hunt birds, as you sit down over a cup of coffee, as you shop together, as you go to the mall... Uh, You just take the truth that God is imparting to you and you plant it in that other person's heart. See, it's more than fun and games. It's more than hanging out. It's more than just being with each other. It's it's a vision to see that person become everything God wants them to be. Jesus said, if you come to me and drink of me out out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You don't have to try to bless people as you come again and again to Christ and you drink of Him, you eat of Him, He begins to fill your heart full and it flows out to others and you begin to impart the truth of God to them. Now there's one other text that I'd like to leave with you. Uh, it's in Second Samuel. And I'm not going to take time to read this elegy that David chanted over Saul and Jonathan because we'll look at it later. I just want to call your attention to one line, verse 26. 2 Samuel 1, 26. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan had been slain by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, along with Saul. You've been very pleasant to me. The word actually means sweet, fragrant. So it's the word from which Naomi's name comes, pleasantness. Uh, your love to me was 
more wonderful than the love of men. Or pardon me, the love of women. That's a remarkable statement. And we say, well, David did have some disastrous love affairs. You know, his marriages uh, never really worked out real well. But I don't think that's what David is saying here when he says, your, your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. The word that he uses for wonderful here, pala, means uh, miraculous. It's used in the Old Testament of those great cosmic acts of God that, that no one but God can, uh, can do. What he's saying is that it takes God to make a relationship like this. Relationships like this don't happen. We all have, you know, we have a lot of acquaintances, a lot of friends that we have shallow relationships with, but there are one or two people that we very often have as real friends on a level of Jonathan and David's friendship. And what David is saying is, that was God's gift to me. And Jonathan's name actually means the gift of God. And it's symbolic of, of what God had given for David. Here's, here's, this, here's this insecure uh, young man, very uncertain, uh, given to crazy moods and passions, and unpredictable. You never knew which way David was going to jump. Uh, wild, violent man. And... Uh, God gave Jonathan to David as his very special gift. Thoreau said that uh, a friendship like this is a, is a divine league forever struck. Uh, I don't know exactly what he meant. You know, Thoreau was not a, not a Christian in the sense that we would define Christianity. But I think he struck on a truth here that it's a divine league. It's something that only God can do. I would encourage you to pray. For a friendship like this. Begin to ask God for a friend. To whom you can give yourself. And uh, in whom you can invest uh, eternally. This is the kind of friend that God says to send to heaven. The only commodities that are going to heaven are people. And, and he says send friends on to heaven. Who will greet you when you get to eternal habitations. Ask God to give you a friend like this. You may have to wait a long time. He doesn't promise to give it to you this afternoon. If you start praying now, it may take years, but I believe it's God's will. But in time, we, friendships like this are forged. He gives friends like this uh, to us. A bit later in our series, we'll talk about Psalm 142. David was uh, in the, one of the caves in which he, he lived during his flight from Saul, either in, in Gedi or uh, Adulam, and, and he was crying the blues, and he, and he says, nobody cares about me. Uh, no cards, no letters, the phone never rings. And uh, he said, all right, okay. Uh, the Lord is my refuge. He learns a great truth, to hide himself in God during that time of intense loneliness. And then some months after he prayed that prayer, God gave him more friends than he knew what to do with. His family showed up, his family that had despised him before. They, they came to his aid. 400 uh, 
of, of Saul's warriors, those that were in distress, those that were in debt, those that were discontented came and bound themselves to David by oath, loved David like he'd never been loved before. God gave him those friends, but it took a while, and I just would encourage you to begin asking God for a friend. In the meantime, don't wait. Say, don't wait. Make something out of the friendships you have. Begin to befriend those people. Give to them. Move toward a commitment to them. Move toward opening up more and more of yourself to them. Give them your trust and and your loyalty and your love. Let me say a final word here. Our capacity for relationship is as big as all outdoors. You know, and it, it is. I, I, I mean that. It's, it, it's, there's an infinite need for relationship in us. Our, our hearts are so big that no human relationship can ever fulfill us. Ever. No marriage can. No friendship can. We were made for God. And only God can fully satisfy us. Uh, Hugo Black and his wonderful little book on friendship says, Human heart, the human heart has ever craved for relationship, deeper and more lasting than any possible among men. The limitations and losses of earthly friendship are meant to drive us to the higher friendship. And that's our friendship with God. I think one of the most wonderful statements in the Gospels is what our Lord said to his disciples and to us. You are my friends. Boy, there's a friend that'll stick closer than any brother. Believe me. That's God speaking to our hearts. You are my friends. So let God be your friend. That's that's my encouragement to you. Let him fill you and flood you and fill your heart uh, to the full. Thomas Aquinas said, love him. And keep him for thy friend, who, when all go away, will not forsake you, nor suffer you to perish at the last. Let's pray.